day. This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundance Success Series, our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered focus, decisive action, and inspired outcome. My spotlight is on rock and roll, and my guest is the legendary Darlene Love, 2011 inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know her and you know her voice as she sung on number one and top ten hits of the rock and roll era. And she started in 1958 with a trio called The Blossoms. She was a teenager then. She went on to record with Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. The Blossoms had a number one hit called He's a Rebel. He's Sure the Boy I Love, in which Darlene sang lead. She has recorded backup for Cher and Sonny and Cher. The Righteous Brothers, Gene Autry, The Mamas and the Papas, Shelley Fabrice, Johnny Rivers, The Beach Boys. Bobby Boris Pickett, remember the Monster Mash? Dwayne Eddy, Tom Jones, and the King of Rock and Roll. You'll enjoy. How are you? I'm awesome, and it's a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm still trying to come down. <laughs> hey, that honor of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame embodies your 50-plus years singing on number one hit recordings all over the world, as well as the top icons in the rock and roll industry. You started out with a trio called The Blossoms back in 1957, but your desire was always to go solo. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and I think the reason why I wanted to be a soloist is because after years of being with girl groups, and girls can be catty. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, one wants to be the leader, and this one is not the leader. And, you know, it gets to really be a big responsibility when you are the lead singer of the group and everybody comes to you for everything. Then the other two girls, you know, their feelings start getting hurt. Or, and a lot of times they're lazy because they know you're the lead singer, so you do most of the work. Wow. But if something really good comes along, they want to be a part of it, you know. You have to go choose the songs. You have to choose the clothes. And, you know, it gets to be a burden. Or you, I might as well be doing this by myself. Wow. Wow. And um, so that was the biggest part of, you know, wanting to be a solo artist, just taking care of myself and not two other ladies. And as like women get reading. older, oh, really? they get even more catty. <laughs> Tell me that. Unfortunately, you know, I grew up with the Blossoms when we didn't have kids. None of us were married. Okay. And we got, all got married. Then we all started having kids. Well, as you get older, you know, life changes for you, even though you're a backup singer. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you start going out on the road working for different people as backup artists. And, you know, people start living in their own little world, and they forget their, their group. Wow. <laughs> What you know, they like? start taking on their own personalities, and things uh-huh. they do, they don't think bothers the other members. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Because what you do affects the, if you're a member of the Blossoms, what you do affects the Blossoms, no matter what it is. When you started so, out in with the that, Blossoms, that was 1958? 58, yes. Wow. And I so, stayed with them for almost 15 years. What was the music business like back then? Well, it was very innocent, very quiet, you know, because everybody back then was just starting out in their careers. You know, Mm -hmm. there weren't really gigantic, huge careers back then like there is today, or even even 20 years ago. So, you know, we were helping people get their careers started, you know, when they couldn't afford the blossoms, you know, what can you guys 
give us a break and don't do union scale. <laughs> really? We did do it under scale, you know, for a couple of hours. We don't have, because union scale back in the 50s and 60s, was $22.50 an hour. And we had to do it union scale just to really to protect ourselves so we could get paid. Mm. You know, uh, but if people we knew, you know, and they were trying hard, we would do under scale for them. So we helped a whole lot of people coming up in our business. And that was part of being in, being a backup singer and helping one another too. So, but after a while, it, it becomes like, okay, everybody starts pulling on you. You're the lead singer, you know. You should do this and you should do that. And I'm trying to keep the other girls in consideration. And I think a lot of times the other partners in your group don't think you're really considering them when you're making decisions. I think it comes to a point where they think, well, you, who do you think you are? You're making the decision by yourself. And you never really are making those decisions by yourself. You, you know, at least with, I didn't. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I you always kept with, the other two girls in mind whenever I made a decision and talked to them and everything. It's uh-huh. funny because after a while, I think they just think, uh, well, you don't have to ask me about it. It's okay. But if I don't ask them, then they get upset. <laughs> uh-huh. What about um, some of the bigger people that you work with? You said that no one was big, of course, like they have been. You know, the music industry has evolved over the decades. But one of the big African-American singers that she actually did some backup for was pretty big in that he w- wanted to actually own a piece of his career, the late Sam Cooke. Can you tell oh, us yes. a little bit about him? Right, but see, even with that, because I knew Sam Cooke when he was in gospel, mm-hmm. uh, because I started out in gospel. So they were big, but they didn't seem as big to us then. Like, you know, when you say big, you know, they were making like $5,000 a week, which was a lot of money back then. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But they didn't have the superstar status like people do today. Mm. Uh, believe me when I tell you, they were more of, great singers to us more than superstars. Okay. Uh, the superstars started coming in with, you know, like Elvis Presley, Tom Jones. Um, then when, when we, you know, we started out with Lou Adler, who was a record producer, with uh, Herb Albert, and they were just starting out. Matter of fact, they were partners, Herb Albert and, and Lou Adler. And we did a lot of work for them trying to get their careers going as producers. Wow. Um, you don't think and, if he had lived, he would have been big? Who? You don't think if Sam had lived, he would have been big? Wasn't he on the crest of his career? He what? was on the crest of his career, but he was changing. He was doing something that nobody was doing yet. He decided to become a producer and own his own music. Mm-hmm. And that, at that time, was like, you can't own your own music. Who do you think you are? <laughs> wow. And he was starting to produce other acts. Mm-hmm. You know, he saw where the money was. Mm-hmm. He was still working. You know, he was... He's, you know, he was still doing his thing, but he also was finding out the other part of the business. Producing, wow. writing, mm-hmm. you know, owning your own material, mm-hmm. you know, trying to safeguard all of that. Because that, in the end, is really where all the money is. People that are wealthy today, like, you know, when you talk about songwriters, mm-hmm. they're wealthy today because they held on to their publishing. Anybody that, that records their records, you know, they get paid every time their record is played on the radio. Mm-hmm. And that's all over the world. <laughs> yes, indeed. Most you know definitely. what I mean? They have th- people who monitor all that stuff. So it's not just in California or New York. It's the United States plus the rest of the world that plays people's records. 
Every time those records get played, they get paid. Every time somebody wants to record their records, you have to license them from these people. And it can cost you anywhere from eight to $10,000 per song that you put on your album if it's somebody else's. Wow. They never are poor. <laughs> but, you know, also it's, it's like one of the you have to always keep on it. You know, who's doing it? You have to have people always monitoring it. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sam Cooke was doing. This was in the 50s, which was unheard of. Wow. And, you know, uh, today now we have uh, many people, whether they be rock, roll, rap, they own their music, they own their image, they own everything. So he was right. a forerunner of that. And uh, even uh, my dad was saying that even today's rap stars, you may not uh, agree with everything they say, they own Mm-hmm. They own it, flock, stock, and barrel. So yeah. if somebody down the road wants to record, they're going to get paid. Yeah, because when I, uh, I, I did my live uh, DVD, mm-hmm. uh, the mechanicals just to do the CD was mm-hmm. like $5,000 for each song that I put on there that was somebody else's. And wow. then to get the mechanical rights to do the DVD was $10,000. Whoa. <laughs> so I'm saying when you do somebody else's song, if it's not yours, you have to pay for it. Because even if you don't get it right away, they will come after you later because they'll find out about it. This, our businesses with the Internet and, and all that stuff now, they can catch you quicker than they did, you know, 20 years ago. How did you get to Phil Spector? How did he find out about you? I was a backup singer in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for his partner, but I didn't know at the time it was his partner. His partner was Lester Sill. Mm-hmm. And we're doing, he was a record producer in L.A. And uh, he's, he said that his partner was coming to to, New, uh, to California, and he had this record that he wanted to do and get it out in a hurry, because he knew it was going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to Phil, and with a few days, Phil taught me the song. Within a few days, uh, we were in the recording studios. Uh, he wanted me to get some singers together. We got uh, his partner got all the the end musicians who end up calling themselves the Wrecking Crew, mm-hmm. uh, and we went into the studio and recorded. He's a rebel. <laughs> wow. That's how I met him. You were saying that, uh, of course, uh, not knowing or <laughs> that you would actually be the crystals, not the you know Blossoms or Solo Act. How did that go? Isn't that kind of confusing in there? How did you feel at that time when that was going on? Well, when I went in to do He's a Rebel, I went in knowing it wasn't going to be my record. I just went in to do it as a, as, as, as a, as a record Okay. Uh, with my group, and okay. uh, I knew it wasn't going to be mine. I just went in, and I just charged him triple scale to do the lead vocal on it rather okay. than just just charging regular scale, you know, okay. for uh, doing backup. Mm-hmm. You know, we got paid as, I got paid as a backup singer and I got paid, a, paid as a lead singer. So I made somewhere around $1,500, which back in 1962 was a whole lot of money. Wow. And I didn't think it was going to be a hit. What did I know? <laughs> hey, but now it's a classic. Now it's a classic, right. Now it's a classic. I was looking at some of your work on Shindig. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about those times? Well, Shindig was fun because um, the producer was uh, a guy named Jack Good from London. Mm-hmm. And um, he wanted, he had, we had been working with Jackie DeShannon. And he came to this club and saw us. And he saw how great we were backing her up and singing lead. Mm-hmm. And so he asked us, he told us, that he was coming to America and he was going to do this rock and roll show called Shindig and would we be interested in doing it? And we said, sure, why not? And uh, 
about six or seven months later, we got this call to go and do this television show called Shindig. And wow. uh, that's how we actually got that show, because we were working with Jackie D. Shannon. It seems like a lot of fun if you, when you look at some of the clips from the, you know, the Shindig uh, volumes. It's a lot of fun to look at some of the, the uh, performers and people that uh, you think uh, like a Billy Preston. I thought he came out much later than uh, the 60s. I had no idea he was an actor yeah. before that. And most people don't even realize Leon Russell was one of the shin dogs who played piano on Shindig. Oh, my heavens. I didn't know that. And he played on all of the Phil Spector songs. Plus everything that he did, you know, after he left that era and started his own career. Who were some of the other players behind um, Spectre? I know that Sonny and Cher were two. Yeah, well, we had Leon, we had, well, we had Leon, of course. Uh, a lot of unknown people at that time, Glenn Campbell. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And, uh, well, you know, uh, it, uh, mostly all of those musicians that Phil used ended up becoming very famous, having own, their own solo careers. Our drummer, Hal Blaine, Elder Laurie, uh, these are names you might not really know, but these people ended up having solo careers as musicians. You know, they started making their own records, and everybody became very, very successful after that Phil Spector craze because they were the musicians to hire, and they played for everybody. What was it like? I told them, I said, boy, if we could have did as many sessions as they did, we probably would have been as wealthy as they were, too. What was it like working with the king? Oh, fantastic, because he was such a great guy. Very, very uh, shy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once he opened up to us, because we to- I told him I was a gospel singer and my background was gospel, boy, that just opened up a whole new world for him because we used to get off to the side with his guitar and, and sing gospel songs, so... We, ha- we ended up having a real connection, and when we did his um, 1968 comeback special, we weren't supposed to be in it. We were just supposed to be singing with the rest of the choir, but then he told them he wanted us actually in the gospel segment that he did in the video, which was wonderful. So we not only appeared with him in a movie called Change of Habit, but we were in his video that he did for his 1968 comeback special also.